Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me. My co-host, Steve Ovens. Welcome into the program, my friend. Hey, Noah. I'm looking forward to uh, having some Linux clear away some bad vibes for me this week. Oh, my gosh. So let's talk about this weekend a little bit. Not the bad vibes. The the good part of the vibes that came before. The, anyway, so uh, made a trip down to South Dakota. And prior to that, tell me if this is an accurate summation of our conversation. Steve goes, I'm moving to the U.S. I have some concerns. I want to move into this house. I want all the technical things. You automate and, and install wires all over houses. I've got the home automation part down. Here are some of the other projects that I just don't really have time to dig into myself. Can you put something together? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And then one work project after another work project after another work project. Finally, we roll around to last weekend where I finally make it down. And I get there and I go, Steve, what are your expectations? And Steve says, I don't really have any expectations. I told you what I needed. Now you just uh, – I guess you show me what what you think we should do, and 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 we'll kind of go from there. And so we started with an ideal list where we would like to get Steve's house, and then we laid everything out kind of in order of priority. And then as we went through the project, just kind of morphed as certain things became more available. So we started with structured wiring, and the goal was to get. First of all, is that is that an accurate summation of how we got to last weekend? Yep. I mean, there was uh, several months of dialogue in between where uh, Noah was pulling his hair out for various reasons, and uh, I was only one of them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's accurate. Uh, so uh, we, we we get we get to the we we get, of course, as usual, when you try so I took my family with me um, and got down there and kids are running around like crazy. Steve's kids are gracious and entertaining my kids. They're all having a blast. And we sit down and finally Steve says, you know, should we walk through the house? We walk through the house and I start looking and I said, all right, Steve, lay it on me. What are we doing? And he says, well, I want to get all of my IT. I've set up my network operations center in my living room. And my wife doesn't think that the network operations center is important enough to be in the living room. So she's asking that we relocate the data center. And I said, well, just think about revisiting that. No, it's got to be removed. It's got to be put downstairs into the electrical room. All right, so we're moving the knock. We got it. And so we go downstairs. Here's the problem. The problem is inside of the new network operations center, there are no walls, open studs. Okay, great. The problem is above that, there is a fully finished floor. Above that floor, there's another fully finished floor. Outside of the new network operations center, there's a fully finished floor. Oh, by the way, the current network operations center which also has to backfeed some of the equipment until everything can be moved downstairs. Yeah, that's on floor two of three. So we're like kind of in between. And again, everything is hard cap. There's no way to get in between any of these things. And so we're sitting there and we're looking and we're looking. And the plan that we eventually uh, landed on was to run serve, was to run uh, flexible conduit out 
of the new network operations center into Steve's garage. Then on the surface of the garage wall, we ran straight up into the attic. And once we were in the attic, then we could spider out and drop back down where we needed to drop down. So, okay, plan looks all right. So, so, so Saturday morning, come over and we outline, we sit down at Steve's desk and we outline exactly what we think we're going to do and how we think we're going to do it. We run over to the store. We get various materials that I didn't bring with me and we get the flexible conduit and that actually got up into the attic fairly quickly. And then we go out on Steve's driveway and we laid out, we measured where we were going to need to get cables to. And so we figured that we needed about 160 feet of cat six cable to make all of the drops that we needed to make. And so from the central place that we were going to come up. So we go out and we're trying to measure out 160 feet of cable. Well, guess what? This is a residential house. You can't just, trade that out over the living room, it would never fit. So we go out onto Steve's sidewalk and Steve just starts walking one direction towards one of his neighbors. And I take the cable, I go a different direction. And eventually we lay out five or six runs of 160 feet, time together with some electrical tape, pull it through our Smurf tube up into the attic. And then we spider back out. And so between my wife, Steve, myself, we were able to get all six of those, uh, all six of those drops in and Steve only wound up with two uh, inadvertent holes in his house. So I, I thought that was fairly well played out for having, like, what did we have? We started, I think, with, like, seven hours to get the whole project done. And I'm, we made pretty good time and got some pretty decent progress. Yeah, I think uh, – so I want to say thank you to Sarah, who was uh, an unexpected – participant here i didn't i didn't anticipate that she would take time away from visiting to uh, come crawl through the ceiling but one of the things i didn't tell you Noah, was one of my neighbors came by while you were inside and uh i have i have this problem where i have to fart, fight my smart aleck phone right and so he comes <laughs> by he walks down the sidewalk he's like hey steve i'm like hey it's like cable yeah cable running cable in your house yes i'm running cable in my house like you're a neighbor and I barely know you. I can't, I can't really. No, I'm not running cable. I just felt like taking up the sidewalk. Today. Yeah. Yeah. I just, my, my son, my Saturday morning activity. I like to sit out on one side of my sidewalk and watch cat six, just sprawl every which direction. It's very therapeutic for me. Cathartic. No, but yeah, no, we, we, we got the job. We got at least the, the, the structure wiring and the upstairs done. So there's still some more work to do. And so there, there'll be a part two and probably a part three and part four. Um, but we've made some progress. By the way, I have to ask. So as a person, when we first switched to remote work in COVID, I made sure to go purchase the best stand-up desk I could find. And I landed on the same desk that I found that you were using. So tell me a little bit about the Uplift desk, why you landed on it, and how you think it's been working because you basically live on it. So there were a lot of decisions that went into the Uplift desk. I, I looked at it was really important for me to make sure that it was uh, made in the U.S. And so the Uplist desk comes from Texas. Um, now, it's not fully made here because there are some parts that they source from China, unlike some of their competitors where they have um, manufacturing in Michigan. But I was looking for an L-shaped desk for various reasons. But my office is on carpet and not low pile carpet. So I was concerned that if I didn't get a an L-shaped desk, that with the height that I need it to be at, there would be stability issues. So that was kind of a big thing for me. I wanted an L-shaped desk. 
I wanted to have real wood instead of laminate. Um, and I was looking for price was, I don't want to say wasn't an issue, but it was a lesser concern given how important proper ergonomics are, especially with, you know, us working from home for the foreseeable future too. So um, I ended up with the uplift desk and they, they say that it can lift 450 pounds. And if you don't have the stability bar, which I got mine with the stability bar, it ships with a little hammock so that you can actually like sit under your desk and ride your desk up and down in the hammock. But uh, I, when I installed it, so I'm, I'm terrible at furniture install and I installed it backwards twice. And then you think, how the heck did you do that? I don't know. But it took me three attempts to install it right. And then when I finally did, I sat on it and I wrote it up the first time that I raised it. That's awesome. I, I too, have been super happy with an uplift desk. And to the people that say, oh, you can't spend that much money. That's ridiculous. The, the deal is, particularly if you're buying it for your house, you're going to live on that thing while you work. You're going to live on that thing anytime you're doing a personal project. It just makes sense to buy it once and be done with it. So I think you made the right decision. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Chris joins us from West Virginia. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? pretty good uh i want to apologize if, if there's a lot of noise i'm actually driving back to west virginia from ohio oh okay but uh i got a question about um oh, if you remember i do uh, uh it for school system and we're running obs uh to do the morning announcements and we inject the signal onto the school's tv cable tv network okay well, network cable tv system uh, what we've got is a consumer-grade device, and it is starting to degrade. So I was wondering if you had a prosumer-grade, something that's not too awful expensive, but, uh, you know, it's not a $25 job from Amazon, that would allow us to inject that onto the school system, Channel 3, Channel 4. I, I would even pick a different channel because I don't believe they actually use the cable TV for cable TV now. They do want to stay live, and they do want to use the TVs. So I'm hoping you have a good suggestion for me. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of suggestions. So uh, suggestion one, so the, the direct answer to the question that you're asking is to use an RF modulator. And the company that we've typically used for this is a company called Cabletronics, K Cable T-R-O-N-I-X. And so I'll throw out the SAW860. It's a four-channel uh, RF modulator, uh, just as an example. Now, they make everything from two to 103 channels. Um, so you're going to be able to, to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And really, probably for what you need, you could probably get away even with the two-channel model, because really, as long as you got a single channel, you're, you're probably good. But, but so in the way that an RF modulator works, works for those that aren't aware is you're going to feed the R the digital video signal into the RF modulator and then the RF modulator is going to inject that signal in as as if it were a cable TV station and so when you tune to for example channel 47 if you've programmed your cabletronics RF modulator to send the video signal on channel 47, then any TV you turn on in the school that's wired uh, into the cable TV system to 47 is going to see it. Where that starts to fall apart, not so much an issue anymore, is 
If you have existing cable TV that's running in, obviously you need to choose a channel that isn't currently in use. And so with a lot of places moving over to digital systems, that means that if your TV doesn't support an analog uh, uh, channel tuning, then you're going to have to have a digital RF modulator, and those are a little bit more expensive. Here's what I would do. So that so that's one route that you could go. You could purchase an RF modulator, you could plug it in. It will be a way better version of what you have. It'll last you the rest of the time that you want to use it, and you'll have no issues. So, so that should answer your question. But let me, if I could be so bold, make another suggestion. So HDMI is is the go-to video connector and and video transmission technology for consumer-grade video. There is a professional version of HDMI known as SDI. And SDI can be run over the exact same cables, quad-shielded RG6 cable, that is typically used for cable TV systems. And so if you have RG6 quad-shielded cable TV wire that's running throughout your school to begin with, you can take snip the ends off of those. You can put B and C ends instead of the like type F screw on RF connectors, put on some B and C ends, and then you can use a box known as a decimator, which is a little red HDMI to SDI converter. And what you'll do is you'll place one of those decimators, one on each end. Now you can get the really advanced one for like 300 bucks, which I'll talk about in just a second, or you can get the less expensive one um, that is like a hundred dollars, and it's a it's, even the the cheaper one is one hundred forty nine bucks. It is the MDLX, and it's a bi directional HDMI to SDI converter. But the beauty of these things is this: you output your video signal to either an SDI splitter or an HDMI splitter, and then each one of these runs you run as SDI out to the endpoint. You put these decimators at the other end to convert it back to HDMI, so you can plug it back into the TV. And what you've done, you've uh, you've eliminated the seventy foot or fifty foot or whatever it is limitation of HDMI. You've eliminated any of the copy protection issues that you could potentially run into sending a video over SD or over HDMI. And oh, by the way, you're reusing the same wiring that you already have in the building because it can run over your uh, your RG6 coax cable. Um, and so you could potentially turn all of those TVs. That would be a much more robust solution because in the RF modulator scenario, you are effectively scaling that video signal down to whatever the lowest common denominator that the TVs can tune to and that the RF modulator can handle and all those kinds of things. Uh, in an SDI scenario, you could potentially send 4K to every one of those TVs if you wanted to. So there'd obviously be an investment because the decimators, even at 149 bucks. I mean, if you're doing it, how many classrooms are in the school? I can see how that would get expensive. So if you want the if you want the answer you came here looking for, then I would check out a Cabletronics RF modulator. But if you're looking to get a little bit more fancy, and or if there's somebody out there that says I want to do that the best way possible, well, that would be running SDI to every TV. This is the way that professionals get video signals from one place uh, to the others with SDI. And so that's. That's what I would recommend. So I'll have links for you for all of those devices in the show notes. You can read more, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our second call comes in from James from Idaho. Hey, James, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, I've been running against the uh, portable pipe monitor problem. Most people are recommending the 
ridiculously high 2K, 4K monitors, 15-inch. I, I like to keep it in the 10, the ideal 13-inch. And the, those monitors, most of those are 12 volts, and the Pi is 5 volts. Do you have any suggestions? Unless I have to go to turbo router, which means hand-wiring a voltage doubler. So you want a common power supply for all of them? So what you're asking for it is... It would be ideal. Ideal would be yes. <laughs> and I like to keep the screen in the smaller range, not gigantic, and I don't need 2 or 4K display on um, something I'm going to use two or three times a year for just to work, whatnot. <laughs> how, about, how about a 7-inch display? Um, my eyes are not as good as they used to be, and I'm not so sure how that would look on the, um, um, when you're in desktop mode. Okay. Uh, well, you get, you're getting into the range of how small. <laughs> okay. All right. Well I'll, I'll, well, I'll start here. So there is a display um, made by the Sun Founder. I think that's the name. That's the brand. Um, I'll have a link for you in the show notes. But essentially, what it is is it is a Raspberry, it's designed to be a Raspberry Pi display, or a, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, all-in-one. It turns your Raspberry Pi into an all-in-one computer. So it's the case, it's the, uh, it is the uh, display, it is, it has, I think it even has like a little webcam that plugs in there, the whole nine yards. But the reason that this case comes to mind, James, is because it's powered over the Raspberry Pi's USB bus. So you will provide power to the Raspberry Pi, and then the monitor will take power from the Raspberry Pi, power the monitor, and then, of course, it has an HDMI cable, so that's how it's getting the actual display signal out to the, to the monitor. But it's a 10-inch it's a display. The only, it is 1280 by 800. Um, and it's about a hundred bucks. Does that sound like that fits the bill? That, like I said, most of the people recommended for all these, two, you know, two, four K gaming portable monitors that are like, oh, you can really, you know, nice, but you know, it's like, I don't need all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And you know, the other thing is when you get into that kind of thing, so th- here's the thing. Not, not that this is directly relevant to your question, but it, it's, it's a good piece of information to, to, to gnaw on a little bit. I would invite anybody that's looking at purchasing a monitor of any size that to look, to consider the screen real estate to the size that, that we have. Now, Steve, I'm going to, I'm going to drag you into this a little bit too, because you have 2K monitors. And when I see somebody that has, that says, oh, I bought a 32 inch monitor, I said, what's the screen resolution? 10, 19, 20 by 1080. Okay. So you've taken what you could have seen perfectly on a 24 inch display and you've just wasted 10 inches of screen real estate because you're not getting any more desktop real estate. You've just made the picture bigger. And by the same token, the people who come with these 4K 12-inch computers, it's like my mouse is a dot. It looks like a pixel. How am I supposed to see that? That's ridiculous. And so there is a sweet spot. And and when I was noticing your setup this past weekend, Steve, I noticed that you kind of hit it. 2K 32-inch, that seems to be... Right. It's you feel like you have a very large monitor. You also feel like you can split up some of that window space and you can get out there when you start getting into what James is talking about, where you're looking at a seven inch display or a 10 inch display. I don't know why anybody would. First of all, I've never seen a 2K 10 inch display. But if you have a two or 4K display, you're not going to see anything at 10 inches. So backing that down to 1280 by 800, kind of like to see 1920 by 1080, but I can live with that. You know, that that. 
that makes some sense to me. That 24 inches and below, fine with 1080. Anything above that, and you should be at 2K, and then when you get much bigger than 30-some inches, I would say even 4K. But the, the reason I want to kind of drag you into that, Steve, you didn't buy 4K 32-inch monitors. Why? Largely because I found that at 4K, I was having to, to do the fractional UI scaling, and I just didn't need to tax my system for that. Um, I Essentially, what I found was I had to increase the screen... Um, specifically text. I had to increase the text size in order for it to be comfortable for me for the distance that I stand at 4K. Mm. And I decided that, you know, I don't know why I'm going to buy a 4K monitor when the only thing I'm going to do is scale the UI and then increase the font size. Like, it didn't make any sense to me. So I went with the 2K because, you know, the video card is not actively working on figuring out how scaling works and the text is a comfortable size for me and uh, the screen real estate for me is just perfect. Does that answer your question, James? Yeah, as far as, as, far as steering away from the, a lot of people were pointing me at these real high-resolution monitors, which would be great if, if, if that was what I wanted, but, you know, I'm in the small screen area. I like my smaller screens, not too small. Um, I want portability, not, you know, monster screen either to make it up for, like, why would you want a 4K on a portable, you know, something, which is probably going to be running on a 10, maybe a 13 if I could find it in its screen. And so I knew you dealt with the smaller screens uh, a little bit more and probably have a better idea versus everybody's, you need a gaming monitor. Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you might need a gaming monitor if you're going to play Minecraft on the Raspberry Pi, but if you're just looking to, 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 to get by and just have a functional PC, then I'd probably just recommend sticking with one of those little 10-inch displays. So we'll, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can check it out, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Com. Again, phone lines are open, 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Lou writes in and says, hey, Noah, just wondering what your favorite Linux laptops are. I've been using a T480S, and I still love it. But the wife needs a laptop, so I might get myself something new and give her this. I tried out the AMD T14 Gen 1 non-S, but I hated the plasticky feel. Never again. I'm looking at premium laptop prices here, but still like the value options in some instances, like the T480S, which is a slightly less, slightly thicker X1. Anyway, here are the ones that I'm considering. The X1 Carbon, not the Nano, the T14S AMD Gen 2, the X1 Yoga Gen 6 framework laptop, heard it feels kind of cheap, XPS 13 and the System 76 Lemur Pro, now $1,300. And then some possible wild cards, even though I'd prefer integrated graphics on a laptop. I'm also looking at the Asus Zephyrus G14 with a 3060, the Razer Blade 14 with 3060. Both felt really good and light for what they are. Thanks, Lou. So, I guess if I was to work backwards, I would say something like this. So the Frameworks laptop, great laptop if you're looking for that kind of laptop. And when I say that kind of laptop, I mean a project laptop, a unique laptop, something that's out there and you're buying it on principle, not because you need a tool for a job. 
I'm not saying you couldn't use the Frameworks laptop. I'm not saying it wouldn't work. I'm not saying it's not a good laptop. I'm just saying if you're buying the Frameworks laptop, it's not because out of all the laptops out there, that's the best possible tool for the job. It's more of a laptop that you buy on principle. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we should probably have more people doing it. So we'll start there. Um, right up from that, if again, you're looking for principle. You want a company that supports Linux. You want a company that is, you know you're not going to have any sort of problems because they themselves use Linux on the desktop all day, every day. You're going with something like the System76 Lemur. Yes, it's $1,300, but remember, not only are you paying to have a quality laptop, you're also paying for the ongoing development and funding of a company born to support Linux. And by the way, they were the first. There's a lot of other companies out there that are doing that now, buying laptops and and, and trying to sell them as, hey, this is now a Linux laptop. System76 has been out there for a lot longer, and they've been doing it well. I have seen uh, the inside of System76 numerous times. I'm telling you, these people have drinking the Kool-Aid. So if you are looking for a company 100% committed to Linux and you want a product that you know you can count on with Linux, I would look at the System76 Lemur. Now, what, everything else outside of Frameworks and System76 that, that I've seen is a laptop that's really designed to run Windows and you're going to try and hack Linux onto it. And some are going to be easier and some are not going to be easier. The notable exception of that is the XPS 13. And the XPS 13 is available. You can order it with Linux pre-installed. Here's the thing. My dad had an XPS 13 and we are on, and I'm not exaggerating here, I want to say times six or times seven, sending it back to Dell to get fixed. And it's no longer in warranty. So, and to their credit, like we paid the $150 or whatever the first time and Dell just continues to take it back and look at it ever since. But it's it's still not fixed, and so it's got to go back yet again. So I'm not sure if you just got a lemon or if they've had some problems with it. I know one of the guys that works for Ultaspeed has a, a, an XPS 13, and he's not had no trouble with it. So from a does Linux get installed, does it work well? Yes, I have some concerns about the build quality. So that leaves us with uh, Asus and Razorblade. Razorblade, I wouldn't count on any particular... Uh, support on Linux, you might get it to work, but understand that's not what that company's focused on. It's not what the primary function of their, or the primary demographics of their users are functioned on. And so you're kind of stepping out to left field. Uh, Asus usually has pretty good luck with Linux, but I've not used the Zephyrus G14 specifically. So now we're left with the Lenovo's. The Yoga is out for me personally because it is more of a, uh, a personal computer than a business computer. And uh, it just isn't built, built the way that the rest of the ThinkPad lineup is built. So now we're left with the X1 Carbon, the T14S. I am a huge fan of the T-Series laptop. We give uh, T490s, T480s to all of our guys because they have wired network jacks on them, and they're absolutely fantastic. I have used the, I have the X1 Carbon, I have the 6th Gen, and I absolutely love the thing. I would be interested to know why you're not looking at the Nano. If I was looking, if I was to buy a new laptop today, I would probably get the Nano or I would give the Nano to my wife and I would buy the new, or I'd get the Nano for my wife and I would buy the newest X1 Carbon. But the, the, the thing that appeals to me about the Nano is it's super lightweight, it's super small, and they've not really compromised on the form and function that you get out of the laptop. So that's kind of how it would rank that list that you sent in. But 
Uh, I, you're right. The T480S is basically a slightly thicker X1, and that is why I like both the X1 and uh, and the T480. So I would check those out. Our second email comes in from Chris. Chris writes in and says, Hello, Ask Noah Show. I've been listening to your show since the start of the pandemic. And when I was asked to work from home and still working from home for a bit longer, I'm not a Linux user, but I also see how much freedom this type of operating system provides in everyday use. While listening to your show, I keep hearing the same thing. I need to back up my data. I agree. I'm not doing any of that yet. I've built some computers and in the past for myself, my personal needs more for gaming. I would like to get it my toes into Linux and build a NAS for my home use. Yes, I know this is not a backup system, but it's a start. And I know I have to get started somewhere. I'm looking for just some hardware recommendations. I'm looking for a hardware recommendation for the motherboard and the CPU or maybe a motherboard-CPU combo. Something energy efficient but powerful enough to do the high cost of energy in Hawaii. And then I'm looking for a software recommendation for the NAS software. I'm okay with the NAS running headless since I'm not planning to do any transcoding for videos. I've never used any AMDs before, but I would be okay with it. I would like to be using the NAS to just have a copy of my data files on it and maybe some more snapshots once I get comfortable with it. Chris. So, Steve, I'm going to I'm gonna let you roll here first. What would you recommend as far as hardware uh, for Chris? So when I talk about NAS, this is kind of a really important thing for me. So I don't tend to roll cheap. So my recommendations are not necessarily going to be on the cheap end either. Um, what I went with and what a lot of my colleagues go with are the Xeon D processors. And the reason is, is because they are very power efficient. Like you're talking somewhere between 20 and 45 watts, but they have four to 16 cores, depending on the um, the chip that you decide to go with. And they can be anywhere from 1.5 gigahertz all the way up to three and a half gigahertz. So I myself have a four core uh, Xeon D based and I love it. I think it's fantastic. It draws about 40 watts or so. And then obviously the discs pull tons out of there um, because most of your power draw in a NAS should be your discs anyways. So that's the way that I would go if I was asked for a specific um, Xeon processor. Right now, I would probably go with the D1612 because it draws about 22 watts, but it still has, I think it's still got four cores running at 2.5 gigahertz that turbos up to 3.2. So that's what I would do. If you wanted to go cheap, uh, you could obviously do something like a Pi 4, which has enough oomph to do your NAS stuff. But just be aware that when people recommend this, it's usually because they're not looking for anything super performant. The disks are going to be sharing all of the same USB bus, which means that the more disks that you add, the slower overall it's going to be. But for starting out or just a couple of uh, disks and something on the cheap, a Pi 4 is not a bad idea. So I'm going to say this, Chris. I'm going to say that if you're looking to get your feet wet with backups, I would. I'm not telling you not to do the NAS project, but... I would submit to you that I would separate my backup strategy from my NAS project, okay? So what that might look like, it might be something like this. I go to the store, and I buy three hard drives. One hard drive is my backup, and so I'm going to take all the data, that, or well, is my hard drive, and I'm going to take all of the data that is important to me and that I care about, and I'm going to organize it neatly 
into this hard drive. Then I'm going to make an exact duplicate of that hard drive on my second drive. And once I have that done, then I'm going to make a third drive. And what I'm going to do is every every month or every night, I'm going to back up drive one to drive two. Every month I'm going to, or every week, I'm going to back up drive two to drive three. And what that's going to allow you to do is establish a backup process. We can change what we're using for storage medium. You can, if you grow your data set, you can get to a point where you have three storage servers, or maybe you have two storage servers and a Pelican case full of hard drives that you back up the storage servers to. But you developing that process, exercising that muscle, starting those push-ups are going to get you into the right habit to where you're not going to have an issue. So I would start there. Now, when it comes to your actual NAS project... I'm going to say check out the Ryzen 3 if you're willing to look at AMD. Uh, you can pick up a motherboard for 200 bucks. You can pick up a processor for $200. So in that four $500 range, you can uh, you can get the, the basic components. Of course, you're going to have to add some RAM and a couple drives to that power supply case. Um, if you're looking at cases, I might suggest you take a look at Fractal Design. I can't think of the name of, of it off the top of my head, but they've they've got one that w- one of my guys will show me today. Uh, AT Commander in the chat room actually, uh, ha- they they have a, it. I, I believe it's eight physical drive bays for the 3.5 inch drives, and then there's some smaller drive bays for the for for the smaller bays, or for the smaller drives. So you might consider going that route. And then when it comes to software, I'm always going to recommend something with ZFS. So there's a couple ways you can crack that nut. One is you can just install TrueNAS Core. If you don't have a lot of familiarity with Linux, if you've not used it before, highly recommend TrueNAS Core. Here's why. You can download the ISO from the website. You can use something like Rufus, which will run on Windows, and you can write your TrueNAS core file to a flash drive. You install it to a drive, and from your perspective, all you'll be doing is logging into a web UI. So you find out what the IP address of that computer is when it boots up, which it'll tell you on the monitor. Type that into your web browser, sign in, Bob's your uncle, you can manage your storage array. And then you're doing that on ZFS, so when you decide to grow your array or when you decide to really put some critical data on there, you know you can trust it. Now, because we have a good backup strategy in place and because you were absolutely right that building a NAS isn't a backup strategy, now you're in a perfect position to really start loading that NAS up. Put all the critical data, put all the things in there that you want, and then sync those through the established backup process that you have. When you start to outgrow that, when your data set starts to outgrow the capacity of the drive, get a larger drive. When you start to outgrow the ability to buy a larger drive, that's when you build a backup server. And that's a nice, easy, clean on-ramp that doesn't have a pitfall. My concern for you, Chris, is if you start by building the NAS and put a bunch of data on there and that NAS crashes, does that leave a bad taste in your mouth to say, screw this whole local data thing. This is terrible. I lost all of my stuff. Sleuth joins us in the interactive matrix room. You can too at geeklab.ninja. Welcome, sir. Can you hear me? I can. All right. So I was tasked um, about a month ago to try to build a NAS for around $300. So a little cheaper than what you guys were looking at. And I came up with two very um, cost-effective methods. Um, I, I had somebody mentioned to me in the Geek Lab. They have um, Intel used to make these really low-end Celeron processors, and Asus put one on a board. It it only has two SATA uh, SATA ports on it, but it also has an M.2, and it's only 150 bucks. It makes for a nice, pretty low-power board, 
And then Pine64 makes a single board computer that has a PCI Express slot. And they also have a NAS case. I think we'll have some links in the show notes for that. Some uh, For backup software, Rustic is really good for Linux. I haven't used it on Windows, but it does have a Windows client. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. I, I appreciate that. I'm also, if we're talking about backup software, I'm also going to throw a plug out there for BarrowOS. Um, it is a... Uh, it's it is it is a fork. I can't think of the the, the parent project, but if you Google BarrowOS, you you can uh, you can see what it's a um, Bacula. It's a it's a fork of Bacula. Um, so I would check that out. Uh, take a look and and see what you think. If if it rather it does work or doesn't work, Chris, or if you have additional questions, that's what we're here for. The show is here to help you. So please allow us to serve you as you go through your backup process. If you have any questions, give us a call or send another email back in. We'd be happy to help. Our third email comes in from Eric. Eric writes in and says, I'm not sure uh, this is more simple than I am making it out to be, but I have a lot of RGB in my computer and I use open RGB to control it. This works great. The issue is it has to run as root to detect all the hardware. I would love for it to be able to run in the background or run as root automatically so I do not have to keep it up in a terminal all the time. This is not exactly the most pressing issue since it does control all the shiny lights, but hey, I like my shiny lights. Thanks for reading, Eric. So, Steve, how would you go about uh, solving Eric's problem? So I took a look at this, and this one is pretty simple to solve, I think. Uh, what I did was I looked at the Arch documentation for OpenRGB, and I essentially just uh, modified a service file. So create a systemd service file for this, and you basically load that into your system, do a systemctl daemon reload so that it recognizes the new file, and then you should be able to enable and start it. And basically, I put the flags in there for the server to start minimized, um, and the only other thing that you should be aware of is if your path is different than mine, you should modify that. But aside from that, this will start when your computer starts up, the server will run in the background, and you should be able to uh, accomplish what you're looking for. I appreciate it, Steve. Yeah, I, I would have no thoughts, so I will, uh, I'll defer to you on that one. 855-450-NO, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our fourth email comes in. Uh, from, I guess we don't have a name on this one, right? Uh, user writes in and says, Hey, Noah, thanks again for your advice on setting up. Oh, Anthony, I'm sorry. I'm blind. That's why. Thanks again on your advice for setting up a synapse and matrix server. You were right. It was dead easy to set up and get going. The kids enjoyed it for a whole 10 minutes, but Hey, I still have it up and I learned something new. I noticed you guys have been talking about self-hosting email and discussing the pros and cons. What do you think of something like Helm server? And so I got to be honest with you, Anthony, neither Steve nor I have ever played or heard of Helm Server. So we're A, super thankful that you have played with it or have at least discovered it. Um, and Steve, I think you did a little bit of digging on it. What'd you find? I just looked to see what it was made from. And essentially, it's using Yocto Linux and Docker. And it's really interesting, actually. They kind of wove together NextCloud for syncing. They got the standard postfix Dovecot. They've got Duplicity in there. They also have Strong Swan for VPN. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, they've got LDAP for you know doing your user authentication and Spam Assassin. So it looked like a pretty interesting project, considering that they've kind of tying all of these pieces together. It looks like 
more like a, a sweet like Zimbra as opposed to just straight up male. Didn't have my microphone on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very cool. I uh, we'll have to keep our eyes on that. Um, but thanks for sending that in, Anthony. We really appreciate it. Our fifth email comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, "Hello, Noah, Steve, and all the listeners. Noah mentioned in the last episode he was looking for some sort of device for his drum notations. There's a d- device, an e-reader called the Padmu, that just might fit the bill. And this thing is fantastic. I'm going to be honest with you." I was a little disappointed that it doesn't support color because my charts have color on them and I I find that kind of useful, but I might be able to get around that knowing that I'm using a device specifically designed for music notation. So thanks so much for sending that in. I really appreciate it. You can send questions to our question bot. That questions bot lives in the Ask Noah Show Geek Lab. So if you are watching the episode on YouTube, you might see from time to time that people call, uh, that people write into the questions bot, and then that delivers those questions right to our face. By the way, you can send those questions all throughout the week. Soonjam asks, follow up to the previous discussion on the anonymous concerns over centralizing through matrix.org. How do we actually integrate our Matrix instance to P2P? We've previously joined Matrix.org because it lets us bridge into proprietary Slack Discord channels. But if we set up a Matrix ourselves as a next step in migration, I'm wondering what the best way to decentralize ourselves. Say we move to ExampleDomain.com and host Synapse and Matrix Element in our own building. What considerations must we make not to rely on Matrix.org related identity and federation services. So to a certain degree, this is easy. If you, so peer to peer matrix is not available yet. They are working on it. It's actively being developed in order for that to work. The, the process is we need to move off of synapse, which is essentially a Python script that runs a matrix server and into dendrite, which is written, I believe in go and is much more performant. And so that is step one. Once Dendrite is complete and once Dendrite can do all of the things that Synapse can do at that point, then we can integrate Dendrite and an element client all as one monolithic uh, software package that you could install on your phone or laptop, so on and so forth. When we hit that point, that's when we can start doing true peer-to-peer matrix. However, Matrix, the way that the peer-to-peer system works, the way, the reason that you can go from one phone to another phone, the whole reason that works, if, if, that you can go from one designated island server running on a phone with a client, monolithic, to another one, is precisely because of federation. So we can't get rid of federation, but we want to move away from any of those centralized services. So we wouldn't use the identity services from matrix.org. And if you're going to federate, you might choose not to federate to matrix.org, uh, because, uh, because then they're, then they're getting copies of the messages. So you might whitelist that federation. So you're only sending messages to other, to the other users that you want to communicate with. Now, if you want to step that one step back, like you wanted something that you could do today, you could spin up a synapse server at example domain.com and just only invite your friends to use it and turn off federation entirely. Um, and you won't and turn off discovery services entirely and then simply not use those features and you'll be able to talk securely to all of the people that are in your little cluster. Kapavik asks, what is the best way to use the new Mac mini remotely from a Linux PC or laptop? I've tried VNC, but it felt very laggy. So VNC is always going to be 
laggy because essentially what it's doing is it's taking little pictures and it's sending it really as fast as it can across the internet back and then trying to uh, correlate an XY coordinate for your mouse on what to click on and, and text input, obviously. So uh, from from that perspective, VNC is never going to be great. Um, Steve, do you, you had a remote solution that you were using the other day. Was it Rustdesk? Did I remember that right? Yeah, so I found Rustdesk to work really well. Um, I heard about it from our friends over at Jupiter Broadcasting a couple of weeks ago whenever they plugged it, and I kind of went and looked at it because I do remote support for my in-laws, and their internet is typically pretty poor on the upload side. So um, they do have clients for all of the things, including your phones, and I found it to be quite good. So you could run your own server or you could just leave it running. So what happens is, my sister-in-law will just leave it running. She'll say, I have a problem. She knows to open up Rust Desk. I have the password for it. And essentially, whenever I get around to it, I just open up Rust Desk on my side, put the password in, and I you know, help her out that way. So I've found that actually be a really good low latency alternative, especially because um, it, it's been solid whenever you've got any kind of upload channel. Thoughts on using it on Mac OS? Well, since it has clients for literally every OS that is considered mainstream, Windows, Mac, and so on, um, they have the binary downloads right on their website for that. So you don't even have to go to GitHub and build it or anything. Oh, that's fantastic. So Rustdesk, we'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is, I don't know how to pronounce this, but RPI Serve. It's designed to be a simple, no reason to fiddle with any sort of coordinates or de detailed configs layout display uh, system for a Raspberry Pi. Now, we've talked about Pi display cameras before, and that's previously what we're using at UltraSpeed Technologies when we have a client that says, hey, I've got, you know, 8, 12, 16 cameras, something like that, and I want them all to just show up on a monitor. The way we've done that is with Pi display cameras. Well, I don't know if it's a fork of the project per se, or they just kind of similarly based it on the original code base, but the new project is RPI serve S U R V and it's designed to be a simple to use no need to fiddle with coordinates or detailed layout configs uh system. The problem with Pi display cameras was uh not problem but just the a challenge. You have to open the config file and write out if I have a 1920 by 1080p display and I want to do four cameras I have to divide that into four quadrants and so the first one will start here and stop there and the second one starts here and stops here and so on and so forth you have to outline all of those coordinates for all of the all of the cameras so the more cameras you want to fit in there the bigger the layout the more of a hassle it is to write out that config file additionally when cameras go offline, it becomes problematic. And so we used to get service calls every once in a blue. It, it, it was pretty good. It was I'd say I'd put it at like ninety five percent. But every once in a while, we would get a call and they'd say, "Hey, camera went offline. We have to go restart the thing and we come back up." Well, no more. Our Pi Serve uh, fixes all of that. And so, first of all, it can automatically add the camera streams into a layout. Additionally, if one goes away, it can automatically figure out how to resize itself to fit the remaining cameras there. Additionally, you can put placeholder images. So we can have UltraSpeed Technologies uh, Professional Security Services displayed anytime the cameras are off, which now that I think about that, that's not a very good branding idea, is it? But all of those options weren't available 
uh, before and are available now. So if you find yourself in uh, a need for watching cameras where you have a bunch of cameras installed, and maybe you can pull them up on something like DS Cam if you have it paired with uh, a Synology system. But if you want something static up all the time, uh, this is a great way to go. Now, I get people all the time, clients will ask, well, why can't I just open it up in a web browser and let it run? You can do that, and sometimes it will work. But other times, particularly with IP cameras, what ends up happening is you start to get drift. And so what you think is a current uh, picture is not. It's actually delayed by, and with Unify, you would get out there 20, 30, 40 minutes and eventually out to a couple of hours behind uh, and so not good at all. Um, so check it out. It's rpyserve. We'll have a link for you to their GitHub in the show notes. Our gadget of the week this week, it was sent in by a listener. And it's an interest. So I'm going to read what he wrote in. He says, hey, here is an interesting gadget that you guys in the community might find interesting. It's called Freedom Box, and it's a private server for the layman. It lets you install and configure server applications like Matrix, Synapse, OpenVPN, GitWeb, Mumble, SyncThing, Crex, and many others with just a few clicks. The whole project is completely open source. It's completely nonprofit. Debian is used as the base system, and you can build your own Freedom Box. Or, if you'd like, you can purchase a ready-to-use Freedom Box that comes with everything pre-installed. It's cheap. It's available for $80, uh, 80, 80 USD, and here are the relevant links. And so, basically, the relevant links are freedombox.org. So, you get file-sharing services like Dropbox, except with Freedom Box, the data stays with you. And so your family and friends can take advantage of it, but you're hosting that data. It also provides a VPN server, and so you're, uh, you have the ability to then securely connect your devices at home from outside, and that, of course, protects your bri- browsing session when you're on public Wi-Fi. They also provide a secure decentralized replacement for WhatsApp, uh, and I believe this is actually – I think it's Matrix, but they allow for group chats, audio video calls from any device – They have a privacy-enhancing proxy server that it hosts. It can also host a blog or a wiki, so you can host your personal website, again, right from your home, securely, uh, easily. You're able to synchronize your calendar and contacts to Freedom Box, and you're able to share media and take backups from all of your devices on your home network. Freedom Box can be your network-attached storage. So for 80 bucks, you can pre-buy this, you can buy a pre-built box Or you can download the ISO and put one together yourself. Either way, this is absolutely 110% something I am going to check the heck out of, and you should too. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, NextCloud and TrueNAS are working together. NextCloud, the company behind the world's most deployed on-premise content collaboration platform, and iX Systems, developers of the industry's number one open source storage platform, that'd be TrueNAS, announce a partnership to bring the full suite of NextCloud hub features to TrueNAS. Tens of thousands of TrueNAS systems are already run on NextCloud, and have the availability of a supported, well-integrated offering that will give a larger organizations more confidence to deploy. Now, Frank Karlicek says that as self-funded companies that share a strong interest in open source philosophy, NextCloud and TrueNAS are natural partners. TrueNAS is going to offer 
the full NextCloud Hub experience with files, groupware, talk, collaboration online, ba- collaboration online based office document editing. TrueNAS users will be able to gain immediate access, uh, easy, efficient document storage, sharing real time collaboration, communication, expandability with over 200 integrated NextCloud apps. Unlike traditional cloud productivity suites that you would might see from Google or Microsoft, all your data is maintained within the user's private infrastructure and isn't accessible to anyone else. Additionally, both NextCloud and TrueNAS provide an extensive layer of security with compliance capabilities, which means that your storage capability can be scaled without any per-user restriction or additional license fee. Translation. This is the per, this is the marriage made in heaven for somebody who wants to host their own infrastructure but doesn't want to lose any data and needs two companies that can work together in a cohesive fashion to take two open source projects and put them together and make something like this work. And so you have enterprise storage needs. You have the ability to run something on ZFS where your data is going to be safe and secure. And then you pair that with something like NextCloud so you get all of the cloud-like functionality without having to give up any of the privacies. This really is a match made in heaven. Now, a couple of things occur to me. So first of all, it occurs to me that up until recently, I've not really given TrueNAS a good solid review for running apps. I trust TrueNAS implicitly when it comes to where do I need to store my data and I need to put something there. I need to know that nothing is going to happen to it. I think TrueNAS is fantastic. It is absolutely uh, virtually unchallenged there. ZFS just does that well. But when it comes to actually virtualizing application or virtualizing machines and running software, that's where I've not really put TrueNAS to the test. And so as agreements like this start coming out uh, and, and some of this stuff starts to surface, I have to start thinking, hey, this might be something we have to dig into and look at a little closer. So congratulations to the partnership. I think it's a fantastic idea. I look forward to taking advantage of that. Firefox suggest is now a, and I'm going to put my, I'm using my air figure quotes here, feature that serves as a trustworthy guide to the better web, finding relevant information and sites to help you accomplish your goals. Steve, I just have to ask, what do you think about Firefox having suggestions when I type stuff in my search bar. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I kind of highlighted this one and I was, I also used kind of quotations when I was putting our notes together, like it's going to be used from trusted partners. This kind of gets my, my spidey senses going. If you know what I mean? I, I immediately thought, Oh, this can't be that good. I looked at some of the, the results with it. Um, it's honestly, they put their, their results are very clearly labeled and they're down on the list. Like they were, I don't know, five or six suggestions down. Um, and they claim that no new type of data is collected, stored or shared. So while I am not the biggest fan of these sorts of things, uh, you know what? I can kind of live with this. It's opt in. It's well at least currently, it is well denoted which ones are Firefox's suggestion, and they're fairly far down the list. So all in all, not terrible. That's kind of where I came down with the two. They, they, you know, they, they go as far as to have a section to say how to tell if you've opted in to improve results because they do have a uh, where they where you can send your results to Firefox and then they and then they analyze them and all of that. But they claim to do it in a privacy respecting way. I've not looked into exactly uh, how that works. It's kind of disappointing that that's kind of where we're at with web browsers, that your choice is basically 
use the people who actively admit to taking all of your information or use the people that try to do that as sparingly as possible. But there just isn't a browser that I can use where it just lets me go on the Internet. And that's kind of disappointing. So if you have a recommendation for one, send it in live at asknoshow.com. We'd love to hear it. Hey, the music in our ears, that means we're out of time, but that doesn't mean that the show comes to an end. In fact, the entire show and its back catalog is available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. I invite you to check that out. You can follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. That guy's at Linux Ovens. I'm at Colonel Linux. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central.